0: And we start this evening with film reviews, death, dreams and yet more Marvel. This time, it's even in the title. Anatomy of a Fall, first of all, is perhaps the most European of films set in France, starring German actor of the moment, Sandra Huller. This unsentimental work is about a suspicious death and the tense compromises that underpin the family at the centre of the story. The irrepressible Nicolas Cage continues his cinematic rebirth in Dream Scenario. This is a story of a college professor who becomes a cause célèbre when he goes viral, though not on the internet. The Marvels is the latest from the cinematic universe of the same name. It stars Brie Larson and Samuel L. Jackson returning as Captain Marvel and Nick Fury, respectively. And documentary O'Vale explores the connections between Irish language and Irish hip-hop. Joining me in studio this evening, Gemma McCray and Justin McGregor. And let McGregor, beg your pardon, Justin. And let us start with Anatomy of a Fall. Uh, won the Palme d'Or this year at Cannes for writer-director Justin Trier. It has, it's very grown-up film, you'd have to say. Complex questions for the audience. Uh, who are we talking about when we talk about the lead character here, Sandra Huller? Uh, Who Where is she at in her life when we meet her at the beginning of the film, Justin?
1: Sure. So she, uh, Sandra Huller is playing the, uh, uh, Sandra Voiter, and uh, she has a son, Daniel, who had was in an accident when he was four and has lost part of his sight. Uh, and uh, her husband, Samuel uh, Maleski, uh, they have. Um, what looks like a relatively normal uh, home life, except for uh, a, a habit of the father playing music incredibly loud throughout the house, uh, especially as when we first meet uh, when we first meet Sandra, and uh, uh, eventually very early in the film, there's a fall. The husband falls out of the third story window, lands on the snow, and dies and suspicion of course eventually mm. comes around to uh, the wife and so the the fall is what is, is going is mm. what's being having the anatomy done of, but really becomes an ana- a, a, an anatomy of their marriage and how marriages work and what happens to them and the court case actually almost becomes m- much more of an exploration of who they were and what they meant to each other and the son is learning yeah. who his parents really are through this right. trial as well and and gemma the, the, the Justin saying there that it's through the court case that we learn the
0: story of the, of the couple. Do we have flashbacks or is it all told in the courtroom itself?
2: It's a, it's um the flashbacks they're they're very interesting flashbacks told prompted by the edi- evidence. So what mm. they might do, and I think it's a very interesting narrative tale, is nothing is necessarily clear at any point, and there is suspicion, even as the viewer on Sandra as to whether or not she has done it. She is quite reserved, she keeps herself to herself. So information about their relationship is dotted throughout. So you have the prosecutor who's this really um, vicious, angry person who's really trying to take down and and kind of almost slanderous mm-hmm. about her character. And in a kind of way that feels very personal, it doesn't feel like they're presenting facts. It feels like they're sort of really putting the nastiness of their relationship on show. And he might, he ha- might have, say a recording so at the very the the day of um, her husband's death he she was being recorded for an interview and and this kind of stems and and links into the fact that he was a little bit resentful which was why he was playing the music really loud so they'll kind of you know you'll get a bit of information and, and through the court case they'll kind of you know, let us know that underneath that the relationship There's, was very fractured. Yeah. What what was happening behind that? He was resentful because she had written the book that maybe he wanted to write. And so
0: she's quite famous and quite successful, and he's a little bit jealous. Is kind yeah. of part of the story underneath all of this. All right, let's have a, a listen to a, a clip from Anatomy of the Fall. So she's, as you said, both have said there, Sandra Hula uh, Huler, as the character of Sandra is a, a, a suspect in the aftermath of her husband's death, and here she is consulting with her lawyer and friend, Vincent, played by Swan Arlo.
3: So as you can see, an accidental fall is going to be hard to defend, given the height of the Mm windowsill. So that's why there's an investigation for uh, more suspect uh, and your your, your, uh, most suspicious Suspicious, death. Yeah. yeah, And your temor assisted because you were the only person there. Okay. And of course, you're his wife. Um, Now, looking for a stranger who walks in, kills him while you were sleeping, right above, and Daniel was up for a walk, is a shitty strategy. Samuel had no enemies. That Stop, stop.
2: I did not kill him.
3: That's not the point. Really. Um, We have to go through uh, Samuel's personality. What was he going through lately? Is there anything that would seem consistent with a suicide? I thought about this obviously, but I just can't imagine him jumping with Daniel so
2: close by. It's just, I just can't get it in my head.
0: That's Sandra Huller there as Sandra Voiter and Swan Arlo as Defence Attorney Vincent Ranzi from the film Anatomy of a Fall. And wonderful dynamic even in that but it, we are in a courtroom situation and there's a lot it, it's quite often courtroom dramas are quite talky.
1: There's certainly a fair amount of talk in that scene, Justin. No, no, it is a very it is a very talky film. What's really fascinating too is it's also the anatomy of the French judicial system which I didn't know much mm. about. And very jur- different from what we might Very experience. different. There are some citizens and then there's a panel of judges and they're all kind of the jury. But instead of like objecting, the other lawyer can just come in and talk about the point the other lawyer has raised and it becomes almost like a debate. Mm. And then sometimes they'll turn to a witness who they're not even cross-examining to help clarify a situation. It's absolutely a fascinating place where it kind of becomes like a a theatre. You It really is very theatrical when it's in that courtroom with these flashbacks that well, there's stories that are being told, so maybe they're not flashbacks. They're the story of maybe what did or did, didn't did happen. happen yeah. And that's always that blurring, I think, of what's fiction and what's fact. And even to the point that, you know, the, the two main actors, or the husband and wife, they're, the character's first name is the same as their real first name, yeah. almost to doubly suggest <laughs> that we don't really yeah. know who's who and what's
0: what. So Justin, uh, Justine, rather, to, uh, the uh, director and co-writer here, she's got a lot of credit. It seems as if she deserves a lot of credit for this. Generally. Yeah,
2: and she co-wrote it with her husband again, which I thought made it even <laughs> more interesting. <laughs> you kind of wonder, it feels so true, the relationship and that toxic back and forth that that um, that Sandra and Samuel had, that I wonder, like, is it someone they know? You know, like, were they kind of working it out? They had, um, so uh, Ju- Justine had worked with Sandra before on a previous project, so she was working on writing with something um for her. So this was written specifically it's with her in mind. Yeah,
0: and, and lots of praise for her
1: performance in, in this. I think that she's Oscar-tipped, isn't she? Oh, no, she's uh, she's fantastic. And uh, she's wonderful in all three languages, which is really quite something because she plays a German woman living in France, but her French isn't good enough. Uh, and his her husband's German isn't good enough. So they've sort of settled on English. So you get this sort of marvellous <laughs> mix of kind of languages. Yeah. And then in the court, you start to wonder is she strategically using, is Different. it easier for her to line in English or exaggerate in English, so there are just these shifts where she goes, "Oh, can I speak in English?" and then she stops even asking. And so, yeah, no, she right. she is fantastic. And um, in
0: within the clip that we heard, we heard mention of Daniel. Daniel is the son who's visually impaired. How important is is his character to the story here? Uh, uh, and obviously, the the young actor here, I think, is is due some credit too, Gemma.
2: Oh my God, um, mm. Milo,
0: oh. my, my shadow, Gra- Grainer, is Grainer, is it a yeah. granny maybe?
2: He is unbelievable, the emotional depths that he goes to, because part of it is he plays very much so a similar role to us as the viewer in the whole point. We are on side with her, we suspect her, we're unsure. And he's mm. on that same journey. And meanwhile, as yeah, uh, we were watching the their relationship sort of and that unfurling of it be told through her voice and Sandra as a character is very blunt and honest and part of that is why she's suspected Ah. because she's not a warm person Mm -hmm. so really he's finding out about his mother's bisexuality their parents' violence in their, their fragmented jealousy for the first time sitting there in the the, the courtroom, and um, so you really he sells that right, and really yeah. b- so breaks un- your heart.
0: Unbelievable in a very believable way. He's brilliantly, <laughs> unbelievably brilliant. <laughs> okay, let us um, give stars then for Anatomy of a Fall. From you first, Gemma. For brilliance.
1: And what are you saying?
0: Joseph? Yeah, you know, anyone who knows Anatomy
1: of a Murder knows there's a little bit of a nod in the title, yeah. I think, to Otto Preminger's work. Um, I thought it was five. I just thought it, w- it was timely. You know, the due process that's going on in the courtroom versus online, yeah. in the media, it's all just done really
0: well. Very easy five for me. Very easy five for you. Okay, that sounds like one well worth uh, putting down in the notebook to go see. Let's move on to dream scenario. Criti- after the critical success of the pig, of pig rather, and the unbearable weight of massive talent. Very different Nicolas Cage returns in dream scenario and this is about a man who finds himself guest starring in the dreams of total strangers. I mean I, I say a very different Nicolas Cage. It's always a very different Nicolas Cage. <laughs> you never quite know what which one you're going to get but you either get the brilliant one or the what was that about one. Which one are we getting here Gemma?
2: Well he's, he's not upset with bees in this one quite as much as he has been in other roles and um, He does an incredible job of embodying um, just the most excruciatingly self-absorbed, socially awkward... Uh, kind of subtle narcissist um, who's who's sort of pretending to be a misunderstood curmogeny genius. It's, it's brilliant and it's genuinely painful because he, all, like even mm. if, if he's sitting to himself, he will start to verbalise his own internal thoughts giving out to himself in a way that's really relatable and very like squeamish because you kind of know what he's giving out to himself about is is really like selfish and yeah. like his his whole premise is he he has like the perfect life. He has an amazing relationship with his um lovely wife. He has a good job, plenty of friends. And on the outset, he's, he's a man, a big house, like he has a whole yeah. a happy family. And you really get that level of misery and resentment when he finds out um one of his old mates from college has taken the idea that he had planned to write like and bear in mind like he's what is he, fifties, sixty? Like he's he's he, this was college. He's had yeah. this idea. He thought it was his good idea. I'm always gonna write the book. And her point was, you're never gonna write that book. That book would have been written. Yeah. <laughs> so so he kind of holds on to that resentment and it, it kind that, of yeah. it, it reignites the flame of I should be there, I should have my book published. And and an way a lot of the conflict in the film stems from that, and in him getting in an his own way An old pro. school
0: pal resentment <laughs> he's, he's held on to. Um, but this idea of being the the guest star in other people's dreams, only Nicholas Cage could carry that off. But I guess uh, Christophe Borley, the writer and director here, has, has to take some credit for
1: that too. Joseph. No, it's... Uh It's amazing that there is so much going on in this film. Like on the one hand, you know, yeah, he's playing this incredibly low-key character, Mm -hmm. completely the opposite of the unbearable weight of massive talent. You know, he's playing someone who just hasn't ever really stepped out and ever really kind of grown into himself in a way. Uh, I don't want to say a loser because he is successful, but certainly socially so agonizingly awkward. And they film it kind of in this sort of 70s, Kodachrome, Nightmare on Elm Street sort of look. But in the dreams, he's doing things like raking and walking through the woods like he's boring in the dreams <laughs> and it's really starting to grate on him because he's becoming super famous. I mean, obviously, and people want to market him. Sprite mm. wants him to hold a Sprite in people's dreams. Like it's just kind of gets... Yeah. But it's never done in yeah. kind of a big over-the-top way. It's really done almost in a kind yeah. of a documentary way. If this really happened, this, this is, is what the consequence it
0: would happen would be. Um, And obviously, we're concentrating on Nicolas Cage as, as the character of Paul Matthews. Janet Matthews, the, the wife, is it, played by... Um, Julianne Nicholson.
2: Yeah, she what I think was really lovely about this is he presents a very different face to the people in his life. So even though we as the audience can see him as being this like mm. deeply kind of selfish, awkward man, he does prevent he does present this kind of warmth to his family and, and to his friends. And there's a real authenticity to their relationships, and even like a, sentient, a sen- Sen- sensual relationship. Like mm-hmm. they get that across in a mm-hmm. way that isn't crude or anything like yeah. that. But you get like there's a real chemistry and love between them, which makes us side with her more because I right. think the instinct would be his character is so unlikable in so many ways. How could we respect her as a character? If she's with him, but I think that they're, they're nuance to all the world to the right, characters yeah, I, I, is what Christopher has done really well with this. That you yeah. you understand, there's a duality to everything, and no one is inherently good. Okay, or bad. I think
0: people might remember Juliet Nicholson, of course, from *Murder of East Town*, but also in here, Michael Cera, a little cameo from from him, Justin.
1: <laughs> yes, no, he plays. Uh... I, I guess somebody's running an influencer network and he wants to make Nicholas, he he's the one who wants Nicholas Cage to hold the sprite in people's he dreams. And uh, he just he he has one incredibly wonderful scene when they first meet and it goes horribly wrong. And he says, let's start all over again and just turns his back on, on the room yeah. for about a minute and then spins around and does okay. start from scratch. Some, a really nice performance from him, but yeah, very small. Stars from you first on this one, Justin. Um, You know, the most Nick Cage thing about this movie is Nick Nick Cage, once again, not playing Nick Cage. Uh, It's four stars. Yeah, it's very good. Gemma? Four as well for it's me. Solid four.
0: Good. You've been having a good time so far. Now we're <laughs> on to the Marvels. Phil, uh, first time in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to be directed, uh, one of these films to be directed by a black woman, Nia DaCosta, Costa. Also the youngest director to make a Marvel film. She's a co writer here too. And we're back with Brie Larson as Captain Marvel and Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury. Um, but he's de aged. In this, we we should add. I'm, I'm wary about ever asking where are we in the Marvel universe, but where
1: are we in the Marvel universe, Justin? We're up to date, but we are. But what's amazing about this movie is it it, it comes out of two TV so, shows and another movie. So it, it it picks up after WandaVision, it picks up after Miss Marvel, and it picks up after Captain Marvel. And you really need to have seen all. Three, you know, all, all to make whatever, twelve episodes, for it to really make sense, to really sort of know yeah. where the characters are, and stylistically it probably owes most to Miss Marvel with a bit of the animation and, and Kamala Khan, who's the first Muslim um, uh, superhero in the in the yeah. Marvel universe. But to really sort of know who they are and how, uh, what an odd couple I guess the three of them right. are. You really kind of need to get. The, it is like a sequel. Without being a sequel, only in the Marvel cinema. Uh, uh,
0: You know, do I need to know anything more than there are goodies and there are baddies and the goodies have superpowers and the baddies have superpowers that you should be afraid of?
2: I think I think you have absolutely nailed it. Got Um, it. (laughs) There's there's not a huge amount of depth to this. It doesn't it doesn't go into the, the multiverse stuff. I mean, right. I'm not, I'm not going to say anything. Right. It, it touches on it, but I mean, it doesn't really kind of delve into the complexities of it. Okay. I think there's a lot more heart than the likes of some of the more recent ones as well. I kind of, are, I, I kind of felt our pure action. It, right. I, I do feel like it was more character driven. Mind you things.
0: now, the clip that I'm, oh, yeah. clip <laughs> that I'm going to play <laughs> might give a somewhat different impression. <laughs> um, you talk about development of character, which usually involves dialogue and visuals. Here's a clip um, from Marvel's, which I think you will hear is mostly about the action.
2: I don't like that name. <laughs>
0: Even without uh, seeing the film, I think I know what's going, going on in that scene. is uh, suggesting that there is a, a bit of character development and a bit of heart in this film. That clip, obviously, um, hard to get the clips from <laughs> those Marvel films, <laughs> but um, that
1: clip, obviously, pure action. Is, uh,
0: is there enough of a balance between the two for you, Justin?
1: Yeah, no, there there was a nice. I mean, I always think Marvel is a bit better at that, as the as I think the Marvel comics were too, of kind of having those moments between the fights or the right. baddies there. Okay. So the three of them coming together. Captain Marvel is sort of very much a loner in the Marvel universe to date, and having to work as part of a team for plot reasons, um, uh, you know, she has to learn, and it's actually quite genuine. Her kind of coming around to to, to liking having two friends with her, uh, and there's even a. a there's even a musical number in the middle where she her uniform becomes a Disney Princess dress, and there's a song and dance number that uh, somehow fits in uh, to all right. uh, into okay. all of this. So it is a bit fun and light. Yeah, it doesn't uh, uh, you know it's not going <laughs> to reformulate your ideas of reality okay. or anything. Okay, stars from you on this one, Gemma.
2: Um, I I want to give honorable mention. Is it oh. Zaw Ashton? Zaw Ashton. She's um an amazing actress. She plays the villain uh, Darben, and I I. Have been a huge fan of her since um, Dreams of a Life, that that old Irish docudrama. So it was really wonderful right. to see her in that because I felt like she was really authentic as that right, as okay. that antagonist. So I'm going to I am going to give I'm going to give another four for this because yeah, I did she, enjoy it. Like it was silly, and, well,
1: and Justin, yeah. Look, they deliver what's on the tin every single time. The DC ones go up and down, but Marvel, there they just are. A four, probably a five to a fan, but we'll say a four. It's okay. So you're both, you've been having a very good time at the (laughs) cinema. Let's move
0: on to our final uh, piece this evening, Oville. We spoke to director Kieran McCormick earlier in the week. This is a documentary which explores hip hop and the links to Irish traditions
1: uh, within it. Interesting story that's been told here, Justin. Yeah, uh, it's really interesting because hip hop itself, like it comes out of the Bronx, you know, DJ Cool Herc, Africa, Bambada, Grandmaster Flash, the Holy Trinity, as Mm. they're known in hip hop circles. And then it goes to Chicago and the West Coast and then you have the East West thing. And then it starts going to like the Australian Outback and Morocco and Tunisia. And these people find it as a great tool for really telling the story of your world. And here it is in Ireland, but more specifically in the Gwiltox yeah. in Irish Ireland. And this fascinating com- combination of like Sean Noss singing and uh, and uh, the trads and yeah. suddenly, but all, and in even the Irish dancing, there's a scene where Irish dancing's being recorded the to become the beat. they shoes uh, are used as a beat. Four
0: yeah. different, different uh, hip hop artists that we get here, um, Gemma.
2: Yeah, so uh, Strange Boy is from Limerick and his stuff is about like a difficult life a difficult upbringing mm. it's very emotionally raw and um, Feta is a producer and multi-instrumentalists she brings her West African style music mixes it with trad and has just a, such a wealth of knowledge about music in general that she creates something mm. electronic and very very powerful in her compositions and then we have Maury and Oshie Mack and they're both um, Irish language rappers very powerful both activists on the scene so you've, you've a really good mix yeah. of people walks like backgrounds walks of life
0: yeah so you you get all of their stories and their kind of philosophy of what they're doing, but you also get live performances or yeah. concert performances from each one of them. Let's have a listen to a little bit of uh, Mori in his live performance.
4: And three A got no
0: And really there, I mean it's one of the it's not the only live performance in the in the film uh, that we're talking about Hovale. those live performances bring it into a slightly different place, and it's a film shot in black and white. There's a there's a, 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 quite a
1: clever aesthetic to it, just No, it's a real clever aesthetic. I mean, it has a kind of feeling of like don't. Look back, you know the great Bob yeah. Dylan documentary, but yeah, no, they they do a great job, but they sort of set each performance up through these interviews, and and then, uh, and, then and just some of the stuff like they, they the two Irish language rappers just talking about what we were talking about earlier, the 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 the, the vowels, yeah. and when you rap in Irish, it's not like rapping in English, and that if you're rapping in English and Irish. You know, this many bars lets you do one thing in English, and it's completely different ball game in in Irish. Irish. I think we'll have. I I I will happily
0: say, Uh, (laughs) starts from you on this one, Gemma.
2: Um, I'm going to go four again. I think. I think this film is is beautiful in that it really goes into the technicalities of the art form. I think as an artist to watch people. I think it's. I think it's actually very important that these type of um, films and these. this gets made because it documents yeah. something really important. So I'm going to go for And I think also something you should see in a cinema because... It's very visceral, like yeah. the, the way the music is recorded, even the scenes where they start to edit and curate and, and work together on the music and it becomes something else yeah. and it's very technical. So and yeah. Four. So
1: stars from you, Euphoria, and what are you saying, Justin? Yeah, no, there's a, a scene at the end, Strange Boy at a trad session in a pub, but he's doing his rap and it's just like, I want to go to that pub, like that just seemed amazing. I thought uh, Four, it's fascinating to be there right as this is breaking through. It's an amazing time to document it. Oh. Okay, right.
0: kera gone on and Kera Realt, uh, along four stars and four films along the way a uh, lot this evening. Uh, thanks to Gemma Cray and Justin McGregor there. The Marvels and Dream Scenario go on general release. Anatomy of a Fall and Oville go on limited release this weekend. You're listening to Thursday Night's Arena. The 68th Cork International Film Festival opens tonight with a gala showing of Poor Things, the latest film from the multi-award winning director of The Favourite and The Lobster, Yorgos Lanthimos. Over these hit films, Lanthimos has gathered together a team who work alongside him and one of the key members of that team is Irish cinematographer Robbie Ryan. Robbie is in Cork tonight for the gala showing of Poor Things at the Cork Film Festival and he joins us now from our Cork studio and you're happy to be in Cork, I think, Robbie. I am delighted to be in Cork, Sean. Thank you. Yeah. Listen, um, poor things. Uh, and another another outing for you with Jorgos uh, Lanthimos. Describe to me the energy of a Lanthimos film. Ooh, that's a good question. I think the the
5: outstanding sort of energy is a, a, a fun set, if you know mm. what I mean, like a film set where everybody's sort of at ease and enjoying the experience and in a creative sense, if you know what I mean. So everybody's having uh, a freedom to be able to create. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a very um, important thing. And he does it so well. I I kind of always um, enjoy being on the Orgos set.
0: And and if that's the energy of the set, um, I'm kind of wondering about the nature of the stories that are told. Then do they have to, I suppose, match that kind of... It almost strikes me as there's something slightly anarchic in the stories that he's telling.
5: Yeah, I guess absurd is a word with Yorgos that gets mm. thrown around. If you, There's a lot of words get thrown around with Yorgos, but that one um uh, he's got a very, you know, keen taste in film and different approaches to film, so I think his films are always quite singular and this one is particularly uh, different, I think.
0: All right. Well, that's interesting. We're talking about poor things, um, and it's another a member of the Lanthamist team who has adapted this, Tony McNamara. This is from a novel by Alistair Gray, "Story of a Young Victorian Woman," Bella Baxter. <laughs> story of a young Victorian woman. That sounds oh so ordinary. Not <laughs> not when you tell us a little bit more about Bella Baxter.
5: Yeah. Well, when I first heard about this film with Jorgos? he said to me you know I said what are you doing next and he said uh, I'm making a film about a woman who wakes up with her baby's brain in her head and I'm like <laughs> sounds good let's do it <laughs> and um, yeah that that's pretty much the premise of the film and um, you know it sounds sort of sort of mad but it's actually very layered film and mm. really really uh, cleverly done, and he' he 's done it with a master 's stroke, you know
0: yeah the Emma stone character is is the woman if you like, who wakes up with the baby 's brain in her in, in her in her head exactly. there 's a kind of a Frankenstein aspect to it, but it's certainly not a Frankenstein movie per se.
5: It's a part of it for sure mm. yeah and we I remember we filmed a, like a reanimation scene and stuff like that where we had sparks flying well we tried to have sparks flying we weren't allowed because it was too dangerous so we had like uh, just all the elements that were things you would have seen in all these Frankenstein movies and um, it's essentially about a woman who awakens and has no concept of what the world is, and she learns, and we watch her learning about the world around her as she sees it. And I think it's um, it's done in such a funny way that you kind of you just can't help but be enthralled by it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have, the film itself is hard to to see it at the moment, but I've seen bits and pieces here and there. One scene I saw where Emma Stone has the Bella Baxter character sitting at a very you know polite and posh Victorian type of table, yes, yeah. and she just. Pfft, spits out what she's eating and they all look at her and say, well, if you don't like it, you're not going to keep it in your mouth, are you? <laughs> you
5: know? So is it, is No, it, like Tony and, uh, Tony McNamara and Jorgis have written a really great adaptation of the, of the book, which is a, it's a very madcap book as well and interesting in its own way, but I think, their humour together is mm. so on point and um, really, really laugh out loud funny. And when is the last time you were in a cinema where... Well, first of all, when was the last time you were in a cinema? Because a lot <laughs> of people don't go anymore. Yeah. But when was the last time you were in a cinema where you were laughing a lot? And this film, I, I personally find very, very funny.
0: Would you go back to the book? I'm wondering how visual a book is, as the Alistair Grey novel? And did that lead you in any way into the several worlds that you have to light and that are created in the, in the film? Um, well... The book actually,
5: Alistair Gray was a fantastic um, artist, and the book is like got a lot of his illustrations in it. So oh. it's kind of peppered with all these illustrations. And Alistair Gray actually, as a as an illustrator and a, an artist, has a lot of work in Glasgow. So if you're ever to go to Glasgow, you'll see his work in the, the subway uh, train station there, and it's it's really really outstanding. So um, as far as my perception, I think the script I was reading was pretty visual to start with. So mm. and you know, Jorgis is. Uh, sensibility is so um, visual that I I kind of just tagged along and figured out what he wanted and he created all these worlds that are really wonderful and elaborate and surreal and just it's a really interesting kind
0: of angle on what that world was like. Well, let's look at it. I mean, there are several locations. There's London, there's the Baxter home, the Bella character herself, the Baxter home, which is in London. Then they moved to London. They're in Paris. They're on a ship uh, as well. Maybe talk about the specific looks of some of the locations. Um, The the house, first of all, the Baxter house, which has obviously a kind of a a medical aspect to it.
5: Well, he's a surgeon, you know, and um, I have to say how amazing a job the production designers Shona Heath and James Price did with Yorgos on this film because he let them run riot and they kind of, they really just let their imaginations mm. kind of flow. So with the Baxter house, he's sort of a surgeon and in a way uh, his his house is a surgeon, like it's almost like a kind of collection of, uh, he he has these animals where he is, uh, Taken one animal and attached it to another animal, so they're all wandering around in the house uh, as hybrid animals, and it's just it's a it's a very kind of you know uh, mad surgeon's sort of house. Uh, And and,
0: uh, are there are there ears on the wall or the ceilings? And there is ears on the walls. (laughs) And like
5: what basically the idea that the designers had was that Bella Baxter was never allowed to leave the house, so Mm -hmm. Baxter designed this house around her. And there's a lot of walls where there's like beautiful landscape paintings on the walls as if she was seeing the worlds, uh, you know, to see these worlds. But the idea was never let her out. <laughs> but, you know, she has different ideas.
0: So in, in some ways, there are pictures and there are aspects around the walls that create other worlds in and of themselves. Where does that leave you then in, in the shooting of it? Because obviously we need to see the entire house in some ways to get a sense of that.
5: Well, they designed the house that the whole, as far as practically uh, filming, it was so fun because usually on a film set, you kind of have like, okay, this room is that room. And then we'll go over through the set or we'll go across the studio and there's another room. That's the other room. What they did, which I think is a genius idea, is they created a composite set is what it's called, where you literally walk in and the whole house is in integral, you know, so you, you go into the living room, it's there. You go up the stairs into a bedroom, it's there. So they made it very sort of simple for us mm. and it was a, it was a joy to film really
0: yeah I'm wondering if that is that is part of the reason for the the wide angle that we get in in large parts of the of the film that kind of very wide look that you can see everything if the whole house is there why don't you show us the whole house absolutely is that part of the the idea
5: well that's very much ingrained in Jorgis's sort of mm. visual aesthetic you know he likes to sort of see the world he's in and I guess there's a there's a, a little again the word absurd there's an absurd absurdity to the lens and it it kind of lends to the kind of the the Mm. reality that we're portraying and um, you know there's nothing more fun than a wide lens you know.
0: How how difficult is it to light an ear on a wall? (laughs) It was on the ceiling actually. Oh it was on the ceiling? Oh (laughs) oh, is it easier on the ceiling than it is on the wall? (laughs) It's like dancing on the ceiling isn't it? It's hard. Um,
5: No it was fine it's uh, you know the way he likes to photograph stuff is Mm. that he doesn't like any lights or any kind of like film equipment on set because that means he can't have his wide lenses so essentially we'll always be filming it and lighting it um, from outside so uh, we just had loads of lights and that Mm. that the the London set was a daylight it was actually an exterior set one of the few in the film so we had a bit of ambient daylight Ah, thank God in the other ones inside I had to get loads of lights to make that work uh, and create skies in there but that's a different story.
0: Well, <laughs> Paris Paris is, is practically monochrome, isn't it? Is there snow everywhere? Is it Paris that has the snow all over the place? That's that right.
5: Paris is all snow. But we no, we shot that on a film stock that hadn't been shot uh, in a long time called Ectochrome, which is, do you remember your old slide films you used to stick in the projector? Yeah. So that's like a positive film. And uh, Kodak had just um, reissued that a few years back and we were able to use it. And um, so that actually made it, super colourful but because as you say it was a snow scenario yeah. it felt a bit more monochrome but um, yeah the way the way we filmed those sets was like uh, we had uh, built it all in an interior studio and we just created this big
0: sky above it all so it kind of felt like an exterior um, and it, mm. it, it works very well. The, the pictures that I've seen of the ship look, I, I mean, it particularly, the kind of views that were given look astonishing. Would you describe how that, how that is made on the set and then how you go about creating the images around it and lighting them? Sure, yeah.
5: Well, no, basically what Jorgis was trying to do on this film was to create a film that had a lot of old cinema Techniques like you know, things you would have seen in 1930s cinema, which would have been miniatures and you know, colorful backdrops that were done to kind of create these things in the studio. So, but what he wanted to do was like bring 2023 into it where we had new technology. And what we did with the ship was we we had a like it was again, it was a composite set where you could walk around it all around the ship. Uh, but when you got onto the deck, you looked out and there was this huge like. Uh, like a LED um, screen that had all the skies. So essentially, when you walked out onto the deck, you still were like in that world wow. of immersive sort of visual, sort of uh, kind of uh, skies, and it, it was something that usually is done in a green screen. Yeah. And, people kind of, like, have to imagine it. But yeah. when we were filming it, we could see it for real and it looked amazing, you know, because we had all these really, like, elaborate skies that were unreal and surreal, you know.
0: I can hear the kind of excitement that, that would be involved in making a picture that has, you know, that has the real thing or... a a version of the real thing if you like in you because it's hardly a real sky but you know, you know that has something there that people sure, can actually look out yeah. at and that you're actually seeing it you're not saying I oh, will put that in in the mix afterwards that, honestly
5: it makes a big difference and actors were able to react to it and um you know I, I, I do think it was a, a really yeah. great choice because green screen makes your imagination go green
0: <laughs> oh, you would hey. be practising that one I oh, know, I just came up with that <laughs> Oh there you go <laughs> Atlantis is rubbing off on you it would seem <laughs> hey, Listen, were you, were you at, the, uh, at Venice when Poor Things won the Golden Lion? I go to Venice
5: every year so I um, was there, yes and it was uh, a joy to be there mm. to see um, the audience react to it and then it just seemed to really get a great reception and the golden line. I think you know
0: that's the best it can ever get. Personally, I think that's yeah. everything from now on's downhill. I, I saw recently you also worked on Ken Loach's The Old Oak. That's a very different style of filmmaking. Very a, a kind of a realism, almost documentary feel to it.
5: Yeah, I've worked on and this is my fifth film with Ken, and uh, honestly, it's such a joy to work with Ken Loach. He's an amazing filmmaker, and. Mm. Uh, yeah, he's got a different, uh, different style, but he actually he is quite similar in some respects to Yorgas. That he uh, has a definitive idea of what he wants, yeah. and uh, that's a great sign of a good director. He's sort of like, oh yeah, let's this is this is what we're doing. Let's yeah. do this. Yeah. And um, you know, I I would drop everything to work with Ken he's just a great guy
0: yeah and obviously you're back again doing another uh, work with, another piece with Andrea Arnold yeah you, you, did that in the summer which was brilliant so it, um, this is Bird with Barry Keoghan can you tell us much about it uh, it's a it's a very uh,
5: her her stories are very personal so I think mm. we filmed it right next to where she lives in a place called Grave's End in London and um, that's an amazing place did you know that that's where Pocahontas was buried?
0: <laughs> Robbie, you're full of... I'm telling you, tonight. only because there's a
5: park there where she's got a statue. I go, what the hell's Pocahontas doing here? And it was because when she went to visit the King's court, she stayed for a while and then she was sort of going, I don't like it here, I want to leave. And then she got sick and then she died, bless her, on the boat out of the, the River Thames. And they said, what are we going to do? And they were like at Gravesend. So he said, all right, let's chuck her out here. <laughs>
0: So there but you go you're obviously enjoying doing the publicity too the actor strike there was talk of a deal today so it's done
5: yeah I think it's all It's all like I'm going to pass the baton over to Emma Stone now ah, she can right take over. well
0: I'm glad I got it. she'll be you. on next
5: week will she be yep.
0: Sean she's more than welcome at any point <laughs> along the way Robbie you can, you can pass on the details we'd be delighted to speak well, no, with her do you know
5: what to be fair to them that's mm. uh, been uh, I was just over in America doing a bit of uh, a commercial and yeah. honestly people have been changing their jobs it's been really really like Quite an effect on the business over there. So thank God that's all. Yeah, I mean, I hope they got what they wanted, and I hope it's all good. And yeah, it's it's um, obviously was important for them.
0: Yeah, none of your CGI and probably none of your AI on a Yorga Slantyman set. I'm pretty much imagining. Uh, a little bit of CGI. Not so yeah. much AI, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think there have been much AI. There's enough ordinary intelligence without any artificial one in there. Robbie, great to speak to you as always. Enjoy the screen. You're, you're off to the gala screening in the I next am, yeah. While. I'm heading off
5: there now, yeah. And uh, I'm really excited about that. Thanks, Sean. Not Lovely ta- talking to
0: you too. Great to talk with you, Robbie. Thanks a million. That's Robbie Ryan there talking to us about poor things. Uh, gala screening tonight at the Cork Film Festival opening the 68th Cork Film Festival. You can find out full details of everything happening at the festival on CorkFilmFest.org You're listening to Friday, Thursday Night's Arena coinciding with the 25th anniversary of his solo career, Robbie Williams has a new four-part Netflix documentary series that looks at the highs and lows of the most successful UK solo artist of all time. Covers the course of Robbie's career from his struggles with addiction to leaving Take That to the band's reunion. Using footage from Robbie's archive and in-depth interviews with Robbie himself, it's executive produced by Academy Award BAFTA and Grammy-winning director Kapadia. Alan Core has been watching We'll hear his views in a minute. But first of all, let's hear
1: Robbie.
0: taste of Robbie Williams there and let me entertain you i I say Alan Carr has been watching the four part Netflix documentary on Robbie Williams he's with me in studio this evening you know it, it's kind of a good way to introduce Robbie Williams let me entertain you because that is
4: whatever else you say about them that is one thing he can do he is the great entertainer and that's how he styled himself over the years that he's just here to entertain you and like I suppose five years into his career he wanted critical acclaim and that never mm. really happened but then again if you're selling out Slane if you're selling out all these huge places in England like Nedworth three nights in a row there's nothing wrong with being a great entertainer and he also was the kind of going back to the very early days of
0: Take That obviously he was the kind of the cheeky one who was entertaining us with his cheek
4: (laughs) very much so I mean he would have joined the band in 1990 when he was only 16 he'd just left school without any qualifications and he was I suppose emerged as the, the bad boy of yeah. a very squeaky, clean band. Uh, but it turned out very quickly that the, the punishing workload that boy bands have to go through really did take its toll on him. And he was also very jealous and resentful of Gary Barlow, who I'm was. said sure uh, to say, it wasn't like, only the punishing workload. Oh, absolutely. Workload. There there was, there's always of... going to be a dynamic yeah. in these kind of bands. They rejected Robbie's songs. It was all about Gary. So he left. In 1995, and you know, yeah. it's worth noting that the following year the band broke up. But, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. they did get back together, but that's another part mm. of the story. But um, th-
0: that aspect of you know the, the break of the band and the Gary Barlow thing uh, and that kind of dynamic within that's all dealt within the first I don't know maybe 15 minutes kind of thing. Uh, certainly, of the I watched a bit of the first episode. It's it's mm. kind of you're, you're very quickly into. And here comes my solo career.
4: I've, I found this, this documentary series quite bewildering in a lot of ways. It's four hours long. It's, it's in four parts on, on Netflix. It's truncated in some ways and there's too much in other ways. Right. So we're dealing... We, we deal with... Take that in the space of 16 minutes. There so within go. 16 minutes... Of the show, of the documentary starting, Robbie's already on a solo career. Another thing that's left out is his childhood. There's nothing about his childhood. Yeah, it
0: just goes straight. It goes straight into the bad. But interestingly, I think they, 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 they've kind of headline at the beginning, or the, the graphic at the beginning of the series is, this is thirty thousand hours of footage that he has never watched. Yes, and the kind of the the conceit of the film is, Gary Barlow is watching on his laptop at home. Those early, part, those early days of his career. It's a very
4: good device. Yeah. I think very it's a very clever. good device in that, um, you know, Capadia, who's made the, the Amy Winehouse documentary, the most successful documentary in British history. Mm. The, the device he's taken here with director Joe Perlman is they sit, Robbie, in front of a laptop in his house in LA and they play him excerpts his from this 30,000. Amazing palatial house in LA, as <laughs> <Amazing palatial laughs> yes. has to be said. Uh, these excerpts from these 30,000 hours of footage and we see Robbie react in real time to looking back on his career. I think it's a very good device and it gives an in to that particular yeah. chapter in, in his life, in the various chapters.
0: Yeah, and, and obviously, so it, it, it flips through to take that stuff very quickly and suddenly we're into the beginnings of the yeah. solo career. And it doesn't mm. shy away from the difficulties of the beginnings of that solo career and it doesn't shy away from, you know, how he had to deal with addiction, how he had to deal with all of that stuff. So here's a clip where he's been watching or he's watching himself being confronted by the paparazzi. I think he's making his way into rehab at this point.
3: Everybody knows I'm in trouble. How are you? But um I didn't care. I'd gone past the point of no return. And um I needed grown-ups. Life has spiraled out of control so severely, but my manager understood what needed to happen. I needed to be carted off and taken away to rehab. Robbie, how are you feeling today? Can I ask you? Yeah, I'm just thinking about 14th of July. It's called Lazy Day. It's fantastic. You got any message from your fans? Might be a bit worried about you. Uh, no, no, not worried about me. I'm fine. But I'm a bit, a bit, um, I'm appalled at the turnout. Where Michael Barrymore had a problem, the staff is outside. His It's
0: a tough watch reliving that again there you go. um Robbie Williams, there' watching that moment when he was walking up the footpath uh, in in his house, and he mes, oh, there's not enough people here watching me going into to rehab. And you think, yeah, but there's something terribly sad about that as well. It, do you think it, those are re- like I know it's a documentary. <laughs> Like he does slam down, you can hear it there, he slams down the lid of the laptop and he, he goes out of the room and subsequently we get, did, did you feel that it was a genuine reaction to those, those pieces of footage that he watched?
4: Yeah, I'd imagine he had to work, as a, kind of wander his way around the harp player in the, in the background. <laughs> um, I, I think that, yeah, he's, he's a man known for oversharing I suppose he's always mm. been very honest as well as being a show off. I think he saw this for our documentary as a therapeutic experience for him. And when we see him watching uh, the footage on his laptop, he does slam down the laptop Laptop in several occasions and said, I can't watch this. Yeah. And it is quite genuine, I think. Yeah, and yeah. The,
0: the, the term casually of massive fame is used. <laughs> Yeah, Can we have sympathy for that? Does he manage to do that in a way that you don't say, oh, well, I feel very sorry for you in your palatial house in LA talking about... I, I think, I, I think we
4: can. I, t- I definitely think we can. Uh, Robbie Williams himself has described this as a trauma watch. And if you think about you know, the level of fame he had when he was only 16, 17, that does damage to everyone, whether you're a movie star, mm. a sports star, or from any walk of life where you don't have your teenage years, your, your life becomes yeah. a wreckage and you don't get to develop. I think it's a genuine... Yeah,
0: so it didn't feel like a performance to you. Uh, however, the introduction of Guy Chambers into his life and into his professional life was a huge turning point in Absolutely. his whole
4: career. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, when he left the band in 1995, he... He became a very hardcore drinker and drug taker. He turned up at Glastonbury in 1995. He trespassed on the hallowed rock and roll ground of, uh, of uh, Glasgow, And Noel Gallagher said he was the fat dancer from Take That. What were, you, what were you doing here? His solo album came out. It flopped. It sold 33,000 copies within the first couple of months. Most modern bands would kill for those figures now, I can tell you. But it wasn't until Guy Chambers yeah. arrived uh, and they, they released that song, Angels. Yeah, and, that was the big, and big, big that's tournament. where it took let's off let's listen
0: to a clip actually where he's been interviewed before he headlined Slain in 1999 so things were turning, beginning to move in the right direction but he's very clear about how nervous he is about this show and you'll hear Guy Chambers supporting him in the background uh, you, let me check that up there you'll hear uh, Guy Chambers supporting him in the background
3: everybody knows I'm in trouble oh. and I really want to enjoy Slay, but I'm really scared of it I'm scared of everything at the minute why are you scared? On, why am I scared? scared. Yeah, so you're great yeah. up here, you're, you're rocking it up here. Yeah, I know. That's... that's I, was, I was in bed fucking worrying about it last week. I wouldn't get out of bed. I um, don't, know, don't know why I'm scared. Just my confidence is left and uh, my job's all about confidence.
0: Guy, do you want to come in as well?
3: From the touring in America, what, kind of, what did you pick up out of that? We had lots of work to do. We had lots of work to do and I'm not really that bothered. Bothered about America? Anything. <laughs> How do you deal with that? I don't know. Um, I yes. do How do I deal with that? I know. Just try and be a mate. Mm-hmm. Try and be a... Oh, it's a wanker. Just try and be a friend. <laughs> That's all I can do. Yeah, it's always good for songwriting when... Rob gets- you can tell Guy's worried about me, he's concerned about me, but also, at the same time, there'll be a confusion for people. You know, he's not experienced that kind of depression. So I, I think it just confuses him.
0: I'm looking for a bit more of a positive spin, hopefully. No, no just on the just on, the just on the Just on the slang thing. No, no, I'm
3: sorry. Do you want me to do it again, then? Do you want a really happy one now? No, 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 I just want an honest one. I just want an honest one, do you know what okay. I mean? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, are you are looking forward to slime? Definitely. There's going to be 80,000 people there. It's the biggest gig of my life. It's going to be a wonderful experience. I just hope and pray that it's good
0: enough for both angles my side and their side there you go that's a, that's a really honest version there of Robbie Williams mm. and then turning it on when he had to there's your clip yeah, you can yeah. use that I've,
4: I've met him quite a few times over the years and he, he always he's a quote machine he de- yeah. he delivers what the press wants but I, I think in those scenes which have never been seen before uh, he is brutally honest and yeah. very kind of uh,
0: and that that tic tack between him watching that you can hear the change
4: in the sound. Yeah, he watches yeah. it. He's Works a, very well. Doesn't talk. know
0: what he's at, and then it yeah. goes back to the laptop again.
4: Yeah, that's right. Um, mm-hmm.
0: But did it last the four hours, and was it worth all of that?
4: Well, I was disappointed in, in in the the lack of kind of coverage of his childhood, and I would like to more about take that. Um, it is in danger of becoming a bit of a, a pity party, but at the same time, given how honest he is, you mm. you really do kind of uh, want to support him. Cheeky you know? and likable. He's cheeky and likable, and he's he is a very very good talker. He's very articulate and very, very funny. And we get to have a good look at this amazing gaff in L.A., Sean. Yeah, we certainly do. Um, so watch it if you, even if you're not a Robbie Williams fan. It, I think I think, I think it's a very kind of it's an yeah. interesting lesson about the media and the music industry as well. All right, Alan Carr talking to us about
0: uh, Robbie Williams there and the four-part documentary, which is available on Netflix right now. But that is our lot for this Thursday evening. Paula Shields and Liam Murphy researched. Amandine paso Devine was the broadcast coordinator. Liam Mullen was on sound this evening and tonight's programme produced by KSHE Talk to you tomorrow night once again 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1 and John Creeden will be with you after the news